today's episode, Nerd Culture and the Environment. Hello, I'm Chris Alvarez, and perhaps you can't tell by looking at me, but I am a nerd. I've been a nerd for many years, and I'm good at it. In this show, I'd like to give you tips on how to be the most successful and well-informed nerd that you can possibly be. I speak with interesting people about cool things. Please join us if you're so inclined. This is Full Contact Nerd Interviews, and welcome. I'm speaking with Anthony Leoy, author of Nerd Ecology, Defending the Earth with Unpopular Culture, published 2016 by Bloomsbury Academic. Uh, thank you for speaking with me. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. So first, um, how did you get into uh, studying this subject and writing a book on it? So I started out as uh, uh, my training is in American literature, contemporary American literature after the Second World War, uh, and my my approach uh, is uh, eco-criticism, uh, e ecological literary criticism. Uh, and so the way that I, I arrived at this particular topic is that uh, the more I studied American literature, you know, of the present and the recent past, the more I started to relate it to popular culture, right? Because in, in the last 50 years or so, uh, American literature gets entwined with popular culture uh, in various media in a lot of different ways. Uh, and so I began to ask myself, because, you know, the period right before writing the book was the moment when we had the Lord of the Rings, right, as uh, as a giant movie extravaganza mm -hmm. and so on and so forth, where like nerd culture started to become uh, more part of the mainstream. And so I began to to point out to my my colleagues uh, that there was a lot of environmental content in nerd culture, and I wasn't quite sure why. Right. Mm -hmm. So I asked, I asked the question, what is all this environmentalism doing in, in not only nerd culture in general, but in the kind of works that nerd culture likes? Mm -hmm. So for instance, you know, the Lord of the Rings obviously predates what we call nerd culture now. Right. But one of the reasons I think that uh, there was such a vast appeal is that Middle Earth uh, you know, is so beautiful and interesting, mm -hmm. right? Like it's a, it's a fantasy environment that people like to live in. And so, uh, so I said, why is that? Right? Like why, why do nerds produce all of this ecological uh, content and like all of this ecological content? So, so there's more to the story, but I want to pause here okay. right? just to, to make sure if that makes sense so far. Oh yeah, definitely, definitely. So, um, but yeah, I guess we can now segue into um, how how do you break down the book? Because I see from the book blurb that it covers many different media, you know, genres, so to speak. And um, yeah, how do you lay it all out? Okay, so um, the way I answered the question, why is there so much environmental content in nerd culture, was by going back. So step one of the book is to go back and say, what is a nerd in the first place? And what I concluded from, you know, from examining lots of different sources in many different media, right, is that the idea of the nerd is not just an idea, uh, you know, of what uh, what I call in the book the loser, right? So, um, so I, I, I say, you know, given what I've studied, the nerd is in some sense an individual who is thought of, right, as non-competitive, right, in a social Darwinian sense, 
uh, as someone who is inferior and is not going to live to reproduce, right? There's all that Darwinian content to the individual nerd, but also nerds and nerd culture and nerd environments are related to garbage and junk and disease, right? So there's a kind of land that nerds are associated with that produces, uh, you know, disease like swamps, for instance. Uh, you know, so, so there are nerd environments, I realized, uh, and there are, and also nerds are associated with machines and in particular with information technology, with computers. Okay. Right. So that's the, that's the premise of what is the nerd, right? Uh, producing all this environmental content. So the, the basic hypothesis of the book, the claim of the book is that, um, when you are made into this kind of person, it is possible to resist, right, this negative identity. I mean, you know, in the 21st century, uh, nerd culture has now become so much part of popular culture that it's easy to forget that uh, originally in the middle of the 20th century and, and for the next few decades, being called a nerd was, uh, you know, was actually, you know, quite an insult, right? Mm -hmm. It basically says, you know, uh, you're not a good enough American. You don't conform to gender roles properly. You'll never be able to build a strong America. You'll never be able to defend America. So the idea of the American nerd, right, is all bound up in, uh, in the idea of, uh, you know, what a good American man and woman are supposed to be. And the nerd is not that. Right. Okay. Um, right. So, so the way I organized the book, right, was that I said, uh, what happens first when when the individual nerd starts to join together uh, with with other people and to form a subculture? And and so I investigated all of these nerd narratives or narratives that are popular in nerd culture, mm -hmm. uh, like Star Trek in the first chapter, okay. uh, you know, in which communities are formed, communities of outsiders are formed. Right. Which then go on to, um, you know, to champion racial diversity, gender equality, the, I mean, not so successfully in Star Trek's case, but they're getting better, uh, diversity in gender and gender identity and sexuality. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, so, so I said, you know, what do nerds do as step one of getting out of this, uh, this negative identity and what they do is form alliances, right. Which tell stories about these cosmopolitan science fiction fantasy worlds where everyone is welcome. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, so that's that's the the launch of of the book's argument about nerd media. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that that moves on chapter to chapter. So the 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 chapter organization is really nerds try to do something right to uh, to change their condition. And then they meet a block. Mm -hmm. Right. So so the block that they meet at the end of the first chapter. Right. Is the idea that um, maybe it would be better to have a world, you know, in which we didn't actually have bodies at all, right? Maybe it would be better to be pure mind, mm -hmm. uh, right? And there are lots of Star Trek episodes that suggest that, yeah. that evolution is leading to pure mind and bodiliness, mm -hmm. uh, the condition of, of having no body. And so, so that leads me into the next chapter of examining this idea of, um, of uh, the world in fiction, in film, uh, right. All these, these, uh, narrative worlds, story worlds that get built, 
um, in things like the Hunger Games. I also look at Thomas Pynchon, right? And the idea that um, that the solution to wanting to be bodiless is to actually build a refuge that uh, that protects you as an embodied person, right? And also creates an environment where there's general environmental flourishing or ecological flourishing. Mm-hmm. And so the second chapter is about, uh, you know, the conflict between uh, virtual worlds or story worlds that are traps, right? Including fascistic traps uh, versus liberatory worlds, right? Where you can be yourself in your body with other people who are physically present, mm-hmm. right? In a flourishing ecology. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so that, you know, that actually, that idea, that pattern is everywhere in, in nerd culture, the idea of the refuge, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. But that too then runs into a, a blockage, right? Which is uh, environmental apocalypse, right? Mm-hmm. Like the notion that as opposed to the world as refuge, right? Actually, the world itself needs to be destroyed in order to fix society, which is the classic um apocalyptic narrative starting, you know, starting with the apocalypses in the Bible. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so, so that's where, that's where Tolkien comes in, right? Because Tolkien, uh, Tolkien had this, uh, this answer to apocalypticism, right? Which, uh, which is, is sort of implicit in the Lord of the Rings, but really comes out at the beginning of the Silmarillion, uh, at, where he is imagining, uh, the secondary worlds, he calls them, of fiction as a refuge, right? There we have that idea again, as a temporary refuge for people, right, who are trapped in World War II, for instance, right, or being politically oppressed. And his idea is that that fiction allows us to to maneuver outside the, the world that is temporarily uh, trapping us or endangering us. Mm-hmm. And then we can look back and say, um, you know, how would this how could this be better from the position of the secondary world in, in other words middle earth mm-hmm. and and then but this is the key right then you have to come back so tolkien's pattern is you go into the fictional world you experience what he calls enchantment right where you you believe for you know for an extended period of time in the reality of the of the fictional world and then you come back right and say how can the goodness of the secondary world right help us in the uh you know in the calamity of the primary world mm-hmm. okay so he has this back and forth kind of pattern where you know where he says you go you go out to get relief and refuge and gain perspective and then you come back in right and work to make the world better which is uh you know which is his version of a kind of anti-apocalypse if you think of apocalypse as destruction mm-hmm. i'm speaking with anthony leoy author of nerd ecology You can find more information about his work on his academia.edu page. If you like this episode of Full Contact Nerd Interviews so far, please tap the like button and hit the subscribe button. If you want interviews with writers and creative people or daily book suggestions in sci-fi, fantasy, horror, film history, gaming, and more, check out fullcontactnerd.com and my podcast, Full Contact Nerd Interviews. If you want to hear interviews with military historians or get daily history book suggestions, check out warscholar.org and my podcast, Military History Inside Out. If you want to hear interviews with space scientists, space historians, and technology experts, or get daily space and science book suggestions, check out technologyinspace.com 
and my podcast, Technology and Space. All of my social media links are listed at the end of this episode. Now back to the podcast. But the problem for Tolkien or the problem for people after Tolkien is that, um, you know, Tolkien bases this in the Silmarillion on a narrative of a, you know, of a good creator God who, uh, who sings uh, or actually causes the angels or the, the lesser gods to sing the world into existence. Mm-hmm. Right. There's this ultimately there's this benevolent force right behind the world or forces. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, and we see that in the Lord of the Rings where, uh, you know, the, the, the person of Elbereth who Sam Gamgee is always uh, invoking, right. Uh, you know, and Galadriel invokes and this, and the elves sing about, right. She's one of the, the goddesses that creates in her case, the stars, mm-hmm. you know? And so the thing is Tolkien's system only works if you believe that the, that the basic creation of the world is benevolent and made by benevolent beings. Mm-hmm. Right. So, so the next chapter goes into the, you know, it, it, it trans, it transfers into the Buffy, the vampire slayer narrative of what if the good powers seem to have retreated or they don't exist and the world that you're living in, right. is seems just to be full of demons, mm-hmm. you know? And so, so that's actually an important turn for me because the, the moment of, uh, not just the Vampire Slayer, but the gathering of what that show calls the Scooby Gang, right? The, uh-huh. the community of resistance against the vampire threat, mm-hmm. um, you know, and ultimately the threat of of uh, of the old demons who are trying to take over the world, right? That that's a return, like so, you know, that's another version of the Star Trek narrative of forming the alliance, but this time after having been tested and tested and tested by all of these political and physical and psychological uh, problems that you've encountered, right? So that the alliance then becomes um, both harder to keep together, but also stronger. It's not a utopian alliance, hmm. right? But it is an alliance. And then, uh, and then finally, the Vampire Slayer narrative, right, then winds up leading into the question, uh, you know, what... How can we imagine not just one individual, this because this is the way Buffy ends, where, uh, you know, Buffy uh, and Willow, her her witch friend, right, um, give the power of the vampire slayer to all of the girls who could possibly have it. Mm-hmm. So it's not just one person now, it's a community. And so, uh, so that moment then leads into the final chapter, which is about superheroes and the idea of being able to transform not just as individuals, but as communities right into um you know into uh people and cultures right and cities and and worlds right that can actually effectively transform the world in the face of these giant ecological challenges that we face today like climate change Mm -hmm. so that's that's the basic that was a long answer to your question but that's the basic structure of the book so um to wade into a you know a controversial subject, I guess. Um, how does the book deal with you know the tension between nerds being you know young white men who maybe want a world that's for them and you know keeps out other marginalized groups versus nerds who are marginalized nerds trying to create their own worlds? Right. So the way that I deal with that um, is to first of all point out that. Historically speaking, right, the, the, 
the nerd community, if you were nerd communities, are definitely not just white boys. Mm-hmm. Right. So the first thing, one of the first things that the book does before it even gets into the chapters that I just described, right, is to correct the notion that nerds are just white boys. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and so there's the correction of gender. Nerds can be women and non-binary people. Uh, you know, and, and they are, it's not just that they can be, that they are, and they always have been, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and, and the, the problem of race, right. Uh, you know, there's this very interesting, uh, phenomenon that I'm investigating further, right. Where, um, where people who participate in nerd culture, right. May, may choose to identify themselves, Right by racial and ethnic categories to to make the point that nerds are not just white, mm-hmm. right? So so for instance, there's uh, there are communities of blurds, black nerds, mm-hmm. right? Although I should say that not all nerds who are black uh, ethnically uh, call themselves blurds, right? But that's that's a thing, right? Mm-hmm. There have always been black nerd communities, some of whom call themselves blurds. Uh, in the last ten years, there's been a very uh, uh, a very prominent and evolving presence, especially online, of indigenous, right, of indigenous people hmm. uh, in Canada and North America, particularly, who are gathering together as nerds, um, you know, in in their own conferences to celebrate indigenous nerd art mm-hmm. uh, and indigenous nerd culture. Because there are, you know, one of the things to to point out about these ethnic and racial communities right, that are part of, uh, of nerd, mm-hmm. right, is, is that they have their own very particular way of talking about race and ethnicity using nerd materials. So, for instance, um, there's been a long tradition since the first Star Wars movie uh, of indigenous nerds identifying, you know, that Princess Leia, ha- you know, actually has a, a Hopi hairstyle, right, the mm-hmm. famous cinnamon bun hairstyle, right, is actually borrowed from with without permission, uh, it should be said, uh, maybe we should say stolen from uh, the Pueblo people, particularly the Hopi. Huh. Uh, and, you know, and so there's a whole thing. We could go on and talk the whole time about uh, what indigenous nerds do with Star Wars, right? Mm-hmm. So the most the most recent version of that uh, is, uh, is Baby Yoda in The Mandalorian, mm-hmm. Grogu, right, who was almost immediately taken up right online by the indig- the online indigenous nerd community right as as an indigenous coded character in that narrative hmm. interesting right so so we absolutely i mean to your point we absolutely have to make sure that in our narrative about nerd culture right we make these corrections as as the first step hmm. right that nerds are diverse in terms of race and ethnicity and gender and sexuality and sexual identity uh, you know, because it's one of the pathologies, obviously, right, of nerd culture that that white boys say this is ours, right? It's only ours. You can't have it. Stop touching it. Mm-hmm. Huh. Interesting. So, so I think you, your book covers. So you did name some prominent uh, popular culture properties, um, but your book does go into into more. I think I noticed Firefly and um, yes, and others. I guess is it more wide ranging than what than what you just um, described there? Well, it is right. So um, you know, one of the things that happens is that uh, I wanted to get in not just some of my favorites, but also some of the most appropriate materials that are that might have been less familiar 
to mm. a general audience, mm. right? But but for instance, in the in the chapter that is mostly Buffy the Vampire Slayer, I do talk about Firefly because uh, because the patterns that that are established in Buffy, which is the series before Firefly, uh, you know, made uh, made in the so-called Joss Whedon verse, which we should probably talk about too. Mm. Uh, due to its its recent controversies mm-hmm. right but uh but in any case right uh buffy is followed by firefly which was famously cut short at one season right but the narrative of firefly is even more obviously you know about a group of people who bands together to uncover you know uh an environmental catastrophe that the government has hidden right and then to do something about it as a group right to make sure that the that the community in general understands that that this catastrophe has happened and also that it needs to be rectified mm-hmm. right so there's a there's definitely like the politics of firefly in that sense are a little more on the surface than they are in buffy because of course buffy ends with the destruction of the demon infested town mm-hmm. right so in a funny way it's a little anti-political because the the solution to the vampires is to make sure that the entire town right is destroyed by that the uh you know the entrance to hell that it's built on yeah. Uh, and so when you get into into some of the lesser known properties like Firefly, you actually get a more overtly political narrative, um, which one would eventually expect from nerds. Right. Because the idea is that as nerd culture moves forward and tries to to mitigate right the negative identity of uh, of the nerd. Mm-hmm. Right. You that that actually is a political task. It's not just a, a task for the individual because the you know the civilization or the culture that imagined the nerd in the first place as the unacceptable inferior right must be cold from the herd uh kind of uh kind of identity mm-hmm. right like you ultimately want to stop that narrative from happening in the first place like you want to overthrow the pattern that divides people you know into superior and inferior uh you know uh dominant and oppressed people who are worthy and people who are unworthy, because of course, you know, as we see in our contemporary politics, if, if you don't address those basic dynamics in American culture, then that very quickly leads to what is at least Mm proto-fascism. When do you think, in your opinion, when did a nerd culture become more mainstream? When was it, at what point do you see it as being more adopted by the public? So, um, so this is this is an interesting question, and I think historically speaking, we could answer it in a bunch of ways. But let me give some signposts, mm-hmm. right? So one of the one of the negative signposts that shows that the the old order uh, is still in charge, right, is the the scare in the 1980s, right, uh, about uh, Dungeons and Dragons mm-hmm. being uh, a demonic force in uh, in youth culture. Mm-hmm. Right. That what the D&D is really about Satanism, mm-hmm. uh, you know, which is which is informally called the satanic panic. Mm. Right. And and it involved other genres, too. Right. It also involved heavy metal music and so on. Right. There were a lot of facets to the satanic panic. But um, but in uh, under those conditions in the mid 80s, at least in the U.S. Right. And I want to make sure that, uh, you know, that when I'm speaking without identifying what I'm saying, I'm talking about American history and culture. Because I think that the, there are different aspects to the nerd and nerds are called other things in other uh, industrialized culture. 
years in the 20th century, mm. and we can talk about that. But for the moment, I'm just talking about the United States. Okay. Um, so I think that a couple things happen after that. There's the rise of the internet and the personal computer, uh, you know, which uh, which allows uh, people to band together across distances, mm. uh, you know, uh, around like obviously there were fan groups before the internet. Uh, but, you know, but people who are interested in particular parts of nerd culture then, uh, you know, find it much easier to find other people like themselves once you get the rise of the Internet and once computers start coming into the home, right, mm -hmm. at least for, for middle class people. Uh, so there's that. That's one thing. The other thing is the moment, and I think this is less discussed, although uh, there have been books about it, uh, you know, the moment when fan... Uh, fan gatherings and conventions, like when when people realize that you can actually make a lot of money yeah. out of fandom, mm -hmm. and so so things that were really more sort of personal projects or or uh, labors of love in the '60s and '70s, right? The Doctor Who fandom and its conventions and Star Trek and Star Wars and so on, right? That starts to explode in in the '90s, right? When corporations realize that you can really monetize that. Because the generation, you know, that had been raised, that had been adolescents in the satanic panic, right, in the 80s, starts to actually earn money and wants to spend it on their stuff, mm -hmm. right? So yeah. once that happens and there are, like, nerd communities and actually nerd families as well, like, nerds start to marry nerds and produce nerd children uh, <laughs> yeah. who want toys, mm -hmm. uh, you know, like, that's actually really important because, because you know, the the reproduction of nerd culture, both through physical reproduction and cultural reproduction, right, is something that the original idea of the nerd did not predict, right, or could mm -hmm. not think of because the nerd is supposed to be this unique antisocial failure who is going to die and fade away. And then instead what happens is nerds gather, gather together in communities. They, you know, they come together as groups of friends. They marry each other sometimes, uh, you know, and then they start to earn money, which can be spent. And so I also think that that the proliferation of fan conventions, right, and nerd culture conventions uh, writ large, like that becomes something uh, like with the San Diego Comic-Con, mm -hmm. obviously, that becomes at the same time like a great site of nerd culture production and reproduction, but also, right, like a site of, uh, of uh, real capitalist investment, and that becomes a problem, <laughs> right, for, you know, for all the reasons that we were talking about before about who gets to be a nerd, mm -hmm. right? Because at first, of course, the people that, that uh, you know, the business wants to sell to, like, are all white. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and so it actually takes until just a few years ago with the advent of Black Panther, mm -hmm. right, where you actually get not just, uh, you know, a behemoth like, the Marvel Cinematic Universe recognizing, uh, you know, that there are um, there are black people who want to see themselves on screen, mm -hmm. right, uh, represented heroically, and they will spend money, right. So right after Black Panther came out, uh, there was a convention founded uh, by one family, right, that put like all of their money, all of the siblings, their adult siblings, right, put all of their money into something called WakandaCon, mm -hmm. right, which is a particularly um, Afrocentric, you know, everybody's welcome, right? They say that over and over again, mm -hmm. but the focus is, is on Wakanda and Afrofuturism, mm -hmm. right? 
you know, so black culture looking to the future, imagining itself, right, proliferating into all these forms, Mm -hmm. black superheroes, black fantasy figures. Uh, Now we see black horror Mm -hmm. movies and TV series, right? Um, uh, Like Lovecraft Country, Mm -hmm. for instance. You know, I mean, that's that's just one example. So, you know, so what you wind up getting, you know, in the 90s and then moving into the present, right, is this proliferation of nerd culture, right, that that meets up with big business and with and with Hollywood, right, and with a bunch of other elements, right, Mm -hmm. that make it spread exponentially into the culture to the point where now, like, you could not say that nerd culture is marginalized, Mm-hmm. Right. In popular culture, it simply isn't It kind of to some extent is popular culture, mm-hmm. um, you know, um, not entirely. But that's a really important moment. Right. Because it means that then, first of all, people have to grapple with the idea of not really being marginalized anymore and who they themselves might be marginalizing inside the nerd community. And of course, this, you know, this takes place like we, we have to we have to talk about. Gamergate, mm-hmm. right, uh, and the way that that uh, women and girls have been repeatedly attacked as "quote unquote" not really nerds, right, by um, by white men, mm-hmm. right, who think that uh, all of the all of this culture is theirs, mm-hmm. right, and that women do not belong and and should not be allowed in those spaces. So you know, we, you once nerd culture goes, you know, becomes super visible. Right. As part of popular culture, then it becomes obvious that that it, it also has, like the culture itself, problems with racism, problems with misogyny, mm-hmm. uh, you know, like all and on and on and on. Right. Problems with the erasure of queer people. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I mean, nerd culture, as we have it now, you know, has ironically in some ways, right, become symptomatic of the larger American culture that originally rejected it. Mm-hmm. And um it seems to me that uh, sort of the American uh, experience of all you've discussed is probably the most vibrant or, or most dynamic. You, you know, you mentioned you have these cultures also in, you know, Europe, Asia, South America. But it seems that America seems to be the, the spot like ground zero as far as changes and, and approaches and everything that's going on. Would you agree or is... Well, I mean, that's that's an interesting question because I both agree and disagree mm-hmm. in the sense that if if you create like if you hold the definition of nerd to to a really narrow definition, mm-hmm. right, then all of the nerd stuff that I've described, right, really is centered on the U.S. Mm-hmm. and on a, and, and expressed in American culture. Although, of course, you know, it's also in Canadian culture. We don't want to we don't want to forget. I mean, there's a distinct nerd culture in Canada, but it's part of a larger North American, you know, nerd culture that we definitely want to recognize. Because, for instance, um, Scott Pilgrim versus the world, which was at first uh, a comic book uh, and a graphic novel and then finally a very successful movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's Canadian not not american right although you can mistake it for american if you if you don't know what you're looking at at first mm-hmm. um so so we have to be aware that like canada is in the mix too even in north america but i would say that um in i've talked about this with a lot of people uh from a lot of different continents and so the first thing that we have to say is that the otaku culture of japan right is not exactly nerd culture mm-hmm. uh but but it's definitely a related phenomenon, right? And and otaku culture is powerful enough 
right? That, uh, you know, and so, so otaku culture, uh, you know, is, is basically crazy fan culture, hmm. right? If you want to think of it that way, if you want to translate it that way in English, yeah. but it's crazy fandom in a very nerdy way, right? Like, so it's crazy about anime and it's crazy about manga and about American comic books, right? And about uh, superhero movies, right? So there's definitely, um, there's definitely a big overlap, but one of the things that's important about uh, Japanese otaku culture is that it is strong enough to have influenced American nerd culture directly as itself, mm-hmm. right? So in other words, one of the things that American nerds understand is that we have counterparts in Japan who have their own stuff that we also love, mm-hmm. right? Even if we don't originally... You know, I grew up in the 70s not understanding that Star Blazers, which I was watching on on TV, right, was originally Japanese, like it was a Japanese thing that was dubbed. Like I didn't get that in the 70s, but now we all do, right? So because particularly the films of Hayao Miyazaki, right, and Studio Ghibli and, you know, that whole complex, like, you know, American nerds love that stuff. And in fact, there has been a lot of influence from Ghibli to, to Disney. Mm-hmm. Right. And to Pixar. Right. So there's there's definitely there's definitely uh, another center of of what we would say broadly is nerd culture in Japan. Right. And then it starts to get dicey. Right. Or not dicey, but kind of interesting, because then you have to decide, you know, if there are different names for for subcultures that appear to be similar. Right. When do you say that you have. Uh, you know, the equivalent of nerd culture or another version of nerd culture. And so, for instance, when you look at the history, right, of the idea of the inferior bookish child, right, who's not physically very healthy, but is very smart and reads a lot, right? When you look at that as a negative stereotype, you, you know, you can go to to the United Kingdom and its culture of the egghead, mm. right, which is also an American uh, idea. But, you know, so so... So you have uh, eggheads appearing during World War II, uh, you know, I mean, as, sometimes as cryptographers, sometimes uh, as people who are developing information technology, right? And, you know, and so the discourse of the egghead is definitely a precursor to the discourse of the nerd, mm-hmm. right? Um, but, but it's much more likely, at least in the 20th century, right, that, that English or, or British nerds will be called eggheads. So what do you do with that? Right. Is it exactly the same thing? I mean, there's all of these questions remain to be answered, in my opinion, because the scholarship is just too new. Mm-hmm. And there were a lot of questions like that that I could not answer to my own satisfaction because, you know, in my in my gut and in my experience, I know that there are Latin American nerds and European nerds and African nerds and Asian nerds. Right. <laughs> but um, or people that that I recognize as participating in this global culture of nerddom. Mm-hmm. But to actually show that that's what's happening in a scholarly way would require archival research that, frankly, I'm not, you know, I'm not qualified to do because I'm not a historian. Mm-hmm. You know, okay. so there's a lot I mean, there's a lot to say about this. And there are many archival projects and historical projects for people who are interested in doing that sort of thing. Uh, that remain to be done. Mm-hmm. I'm speaking with Anthony Leoy, author of Nerd Ecology. You can find more information about his work on his academia.edu page. If you like this episode of Full Contact Nerd Interviews so far, please tap the like button and hit the subscribe button. 
If you want interviews with writers and creative people, or daily book suggestions in sci-fi, fantasy, horror, film history, gaming, and more, check out FullContactNerd.com and my podcast, Full Contact Nerd Interviews. If you want to hear interviews with military historians or get daily history book suggestions, check out warscholar.org and my podcast, Military History Inside Out. If you want to hear interviews with space scientists, space historians, and technology experts, or get daily space and science book suggestions, check out technologyandspace.com and my podcast, Technology and Space. All of my social media links are listed at the end of this episode. Now back to the podcast. Let me actually turn to how you do did your research, just since you mentioned it. How, how did you put the book together? Is it sort of essays on your experiences, or, or what was your approach? Well, I would, not ca- I would call the book, the book is still a monograph in the sense that it is pointed at an academic, a big academic audience, mm-hmm. right, that, uh, that is generally interested in environmental cultures and in, in uh, American pop culture. But for that reason, I, I both wanted to introduce a bit of biographical content into some of the chapters, especially at the beginning, mm-hmm. to sort of admit that I'm a participant observer mm-hmm. as an academic, and I didn't want to try to pretend in a ridiculous way that I was not part of the thing that I was writing about and studying. Mm-hmm. Okay. But at the same time, and this actually, you know, was a challenge once it was published, people sort of expected it to be a much more popular work than it actually was. Hmm. Right. So, so it, this is a very academic work in the sense that uh, it definitely involves a lot of critical cultural theory, some of which is, some of which is explicit and some of which is not. Mm-hmm. Right. So, so, for instance, in the background, to, to go to the, the point about uh, method, in the background, right, uh, is the, the idea of biopolitics, mm-hmm. right, that eventually goes back to Foucault and, and moves through Agamben. Uh, so there's all this European philosophy and history in the background. I never really actually use the word biopolitical. Like, I never say the nerd is a biopolitical category because I didn't actually want to have a chapter on Foucault. Yeah. Right. But what I did want to say was that when you when a culture starts to identify inferior individual children, right, or groups of children, uh, you know, as not worthy of existing, right, or as needing to become more, quote unquote, normal uh, in order to be worthy of citizenship and participation and all of that, that is a political act. Right. Like if you think about it. And this is why I used biopolitics in the background. If you think about it, it you know, it, it is it is actually not intuitive, <laughs> right, to say, oh, of course, a culture would try to cull out some of its own children by identifying them at an early age as physically inferior and therefore not worthy of existence. Right. It's just, you know, mm-hmm. that sounds a little Spartan, but actually <laughs> the United States does it, too, mm-hmm. um, which, by the way, is the connection right to the histories Right. Uh, you know, of settler colonialism. Right. And the reason why there are indigenous, because indigenous recognize this pattern of being culled. Right. Because they are inferior from the history of the way mainstream white culture has treated Indian nations and Indian and uh, indigenous individuals. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and of course, you know, and the same thing with with uh, with black Americans. Right. And the history of of Jim Crow and slavery. Mm -hmm. Right. It's like, oh, huh. Where else has America tried to cull out 
right, individuals and subcultures because they're inferior. Hmm. Um, uh, you know, queer people too. Mm-hmm. So, so anyway, I started with that, that theoretical idea of biopolitics in the background. Mm-hmm. Right. And, uh, you know, and then I, I tried to investigate because I'm, I'm ultimately a literary scholar. Mm-hmm. I tried to investigate the narratives and the symbols and the motifs and the tropes mm-hmm. of nerd culture. And I tried to assemble those into a pattern that made sense, at least some sense, mm-hmm. I hope. And so, um, so that's actually what the first chapter in nerd ecology does, mm-hmm. right? Uh, it, it treats in a large, largely literary theoretical way, the idea of the nerd and all of the narratives and signs and symbols and tropes that nerd culture has evolved, mm-hmm. right? So there's that. And, you know, and that, but then I wanted to say, given those larger patterns, how can we understand all of these apparently quite different objects of nerd love and devotion in culture, some of them books, some of them films, some of them television series and so on, right? Can we assemble them into a pattern that makes sense given what I have said the nerd is, right? Mm-hmm. And what the nerd is trying to become. And so that's what the that's what the other chapters are trying to do, to try to say, once you have this understanding of the nerd as a biopolitical subject, right, and as a, uh, you know, and as a member of, of, of a kind of ecology and an ecological community, then how can we make sense of all of these beloved, you know, elements in nerd culture, mm-hmm. right? So that, that's the way the rest of the book evolved. So I'm not quite sure I answered your question. So no, please tell me if that's, if that's the kind of answer you wanted. Yes, yes, yes. And, uh, and just to, and, and earlier you just meant, um, just to sort of clarify and, and correct on your behalf when you said oppressive cultures considered the others inferior, you meant that they thought they were inferior, not that they were, just the way your wording oh, was. Correct. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yes, yes. But I mean, to, to clarify a little more, what I mean is, right, that nerd culture, right, well, not nerd culture, but the idea of the nerd is the tip of, what I would call, you know, American eugenics, mm-hmm. right? It's a version of American eugenic thinking, right? Which tries to breed a superior race mm-hmm. uh, and, you know, and which tries to identify uh, inferior elements which should not be allowed to reproduce, mm-hmm. right? In order to strengthen, you know, what is overtly before World War, World War II, at least, called a master race, mm-hmm. right? And so my point was simply that, when you pull on the string, right, that is attached to the idea of the nerd, right, you come to these larger eugenic colonial projects of making sure that there are no more Indians, you know, right, um, making sure that individuals who think of themselves as indigenous, right, come to assimilate so deeply into white culture that they are no longer indigenous at all, mm-hmm. right, which was an overt project of the United States government for centuries, mm-hmm. right. Um, and so, you know, and again, obviously, right, the, uh, you know, the idea of eugenics being applied uh, to African-American communities in the Tuskegee experiments mm-hmm. uh, in, you know, through through public health uh, initiatives that that wound up sterilizing black women against their will mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, and and without their knowledge. So, you know, when you when you think about the origins of nerd, right, as as part of eugenic culture that is visible inside white communities too Mm -hmm. if you look at it a certain way suddenly things that are happening now right 
don't look unprecedented anymore. So, for instance, the politics at the border, right, where immigrants are thought of as a threat and they're going to dilute the pure blood of America and destroy our economy, right? And then that that apparently sudden crisis, right, uh, you know, of of women of migrant women who uh, at the border uh, were sterilized, right, by American doctors without their mm. consent or their knowledge. Mm. Like all of that has happened before and and not accidentally. And right. so one of the I think that one of the uses of this project for people who are not necessarily, you know, like interested in Buffy the Vampire Slayer or Star Trek per se, is that it tries to uncover patterns of eugenic culture and resistance mm. to eugenic culture in the U.S., in ways that we might not ordinarily recognize as such. Hmm. Interesting. Let me ask a different sort of question. Personally, I felt, I always feel sort of a tension about superheroes or super characters, you know, people emulating someone who's the strongest or the smartest or the fastest, you know, that, that almost seems like people want to be part of the, the master superhero group, you know? So yeah. So you, I should just, should I riff on that? <laughs> sure, sure. I, I, I'd like your comments on that thought. Okay. So I, I, I talk about that in the, in the chapter on superheroes and also in some later work that I've done too. Mm-hmm. And I think that, that what is, uh, like the tension that you're, you're talking about is absolutely real, right? And so the notion of, you know, the superhero as, as real, real ubermensch, right, or uberfrau, if you want to think about it across lines of gender, mm-hmm. right? If we look at a, at a contemporary show like The Boys, mm-hmm. right, The Boys is an example of what happens when superheroes, right, are not resisting the culture of eugenics and not promoting a culture of democratic participation and of citizenship for everyone, but rather like doing straight up eugenics, right, in the Nazi style, uh, you know, and in the American style, traditionally, where the strongest survive and the strongest are best and the most talented, like, it's sort of like, uh, you know, uh, a terrible takedown of meritocracy as a concept, mm-hmm. that the best should rule, mm-hmm. you know, and so, of course, right, there's a terrible danger in, you know, if if we decide, right, that superheroes are meant to be uh, symbols of of the elite class, right, that dominates and rules others by virtue of their inborn power, mm-hmm. right, um, which is always a, an allegory for, for the privilege of, uh, you know, of the ruling class and of, uh, of the people who rule meritocracy and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. So, but, but, you know, I want to back up and say that I think that sometimes when, when superhero media, because they are so popular, when, when people start to express this worry uh, about superhero culture without understanding the history of superheroes, right? They can, they can, it's not overemphasize, right? But they can be mistaken about the fact that this is not the only thing that superheroes can do, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so uh, in the book, right, one of the ways that I start to think about this is the idea of the metahuman, mm-hmm. right? The notion, the, which is a, an idea that comes from DC Comics. Uh, it's not mine, right? But what I argue is that there, you know, there is a core of egalitarian and anti-racist uh, and anti-sexist and, you know, and sort of basically utopian thought inside the idea of the superhero mm-hmm. from, from its beginnings 
right? As we recognize them, for instance, in DC and, well, what would eventually become DC and Marvel Comics. Mm -hmm. So for instance, right, Superman, who is not my favorite, right, but is too important to, uh, you know, to let go of. Mm -hmm. Superman overtly fights the Klan. Like in the 30s, uh, there's, there's this amazing early animated Superman series mm -hmm. where Superman fights the Klan and Superman allies himself uh, with local indigenous nations, right, to fight mm -hmm. threats, right, uh, to indigenous nations. And so you can go on and on, right? Gene Yang, I don't know whether you're familiar with, with Gene Yang, uh, the wonderful uh, graphic novelist, but uh, he's famous for a book called ABC, American Born Chinese, mm -hmm. right? But he just put out a graphic novel about Superman and the Klan, where Superman defends this Chinese immigrant community, right, from white supremacists who are trying to drive them out. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and when you, you know, and so the way that that happens, not just with Superman, but also with Wonder Woman, you know, and all of these characters who come from another world, right, uh, to our world, those characters are originally presented as immigrants, right, or as uh, people who are who don't belong, right, who are subject mm. to a kind of xenophobia themselves so that they actually can empathize like Superman as, uh, you know, as a refugee from Krypton, mm -hmm. you know, uh, is is a person who looks at the Chinese immigrant community and says, like, these people could be my people, mm -hmm. right? Like he says, I'm an immigrant too. And so, you know, there's a way that the original strongman, ubermensch archetype is undermined. And of course, classically speaking, what everybody points out, and this is true, is that, um, you know, as with the Michael Chabon novel, The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay, right, which is about this, a lot of these superheroes were invented by Jewish immigrants, mm. right? And, uh, you know, and, ex and expressed the longing for, um, for a defender for the Jewish community in exile, right, and in diaspora, mm. uh, and of course, being threatened by the Nazis, Right. So, of course, one of the first people that Captain America punches is Hitler. Huh. Right. So I think that one of the things that we have to see is that these these classic golden age superheroes. Right. Who look like Nazi Nazi eugenic archetypes <laughs> are made to look that way on purpose so that the archetype can be politically subverted huh. in a variety of ways. Right. And so and this idea, you know, uh, so creators of color like so black and Asian and uh, and women and queer creators inside inside nerd culture, everybody understands this. Right. And so oftentimes you see things like Gene Yang's Superman, where where the anti-racist, uh, anti-xenophobic layer of Superman's lineage. Right. Comes right to the top. And then, of course, people you know, like mostly white people say, oh, you know, like mm. social justice warrior culture comes to Superman. But actually, that's what Superman was from the beginning. Mm -hmm. Right. And so there's a mm. there's actually a conflict in Star Trek culture in fan culture now about the fact that there's a there's a gay couple in Star Trek Discovery, very mm. prominent gay couple mm -hmm. who have adopted a non-binary child mm -hmm. in season three. You know, and and so, of course, there was this uproar where people were like, uh, you know, I don't want I don't want all of this like oppressive, politically correct content in my Star Trek. And, you know, and the very oldest fans, like the people who are in their 70s and 80s now, mm -hmm. right, the original Star Trek fans, right, 
came onto social media in force and said, if you do not understand that Star Trek is about inclusivity, right, and, uh, you know, and a, and a cosmopolis where everybody belongs and everyone is welcome, mm-hmm. right, you just never understood Star Trek from the beginning, mm-hmm. right? You were just wrong, <laughs> you know? And yeah. so, you know, this is a real fight inside not only multiple fandoms, but inside what we would think of as Anglophone nerd culture writ large, right? Where people are are starting to say, no, no, right? Like if if you think this is supposed to be about like good white supremacy or asserting, right, patriarchal values where the white guy like Picard, right, Captain Picard from Next Generation, where the white guy is always right and he's always in charge, right? And any criticism of him is verboten, mm-hmm. right? You You need to stand down because you've misunderstood what the narrative was always about. Mm-hmm. And so we get, for instance, this interesting moment in Star Trek Picard at the very end of the first season. Sorry, spoiler alert. Look away if you've not seen Star Trek. I'll let people uh, know. <laughs> okay. So, uh, so uh, Captain Picard becomes an android at the end, right? Like his friends save his life. He's dying from an incurable disease. Uh, and so he has just defended a planet of, of android people and argued that they should belong to the Federation and they should be citizens and they should not be banned, right? And then he becomes one of them. He's transformed into an android. So so what I think the work of contemporary nerd culture is turning into is not just lifting up formerly invisible components um, of, of nerd communities, or at least invisible to white people, um, you know, uh, into into the mainstream of nerd culture, but also to actually go directly at those those misunderstandings about who a, a Captain Picard really is and what he stands for, because now he actually is the other, mm-hmm. right? Before he was like an advocate of the other, and now he is the other. Mm-hmm. And the new season is going to have to explore what that means, because he's not Mr. White Guy anymore. He's mm-hmm. not even human, right? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. you know, so there's, I think that, I think that the people who are creating now, the, the, the ones that are doing um, contemporary nerd culture in all genres, right, are having to contend, right, with what to do with not only the legacy of the old characters who, who could be used in exclusionary ways, but also just what do you do with those characters themselves to show that they are not there in order to justify white heteropatriarchy, mm-hmm. Um so, you know, it's a it's an interesting challenge, but I think people are rising to it. It's in, so it makes me wonder with with nerddom becoming more mainstream, you know, you you on one hand you get more people marginalized people who maybe weren't aware that they could, you know, join this community and do and then you also get people who want to enforce conservative traditional values become interested and then they start trying to uh, mold it into their their view. So, Right. And to, to go back to the issue of the superhero, mm-hmm. right, one of the pathways, one of the things that you can do if you find yourself, you know, labeled a nerd is that you can say, rather than transforming the system that calls me this thing, right, so that so that we move towards a place of, of like greater acceptance, you know, and like real, real participatory democracy for everyone and so on, where, so that we move in an anti-fascist direction. Mm-hmm. Right. One of the possible reactions is to identify with, you know, with the oppressor. It's like Stockholm syndrome. 
right? So you can say, well, you've called me a loser, but I am actually a member of the superior race, right? Uh, you know, I'm, uh, you know, I win, right? I'm a predator. I'm not prey, mm-hmm. right? Like I'm beautiful, pristine, uh, you know, I'm the beautiful, pristine woodland of the wilderness, right? And I'm not this horrible swamp full of disease, right? And all of my machines are beautiful machines, right? And in fact, many of them are weapons, right? Because the machine, when you flip it, turns into a weapon of empire, mm-hmm. right? So you can you can turn yourself, right, into an image of the people who did this to you in the first place, mm-hmm. right? That That absolutely has happened, right? It's part of the larger... Uh, you know, to be technical about it, the larger semiotic structure, the structure of the nerd sign, where you can just flip all of those categories and say, no, 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 I want to be the dominator, right? I will be the leader of the fascist battalion and so on, right? And my, and I will prove I'm not a nerd by, you know, by dominating other people who deserve to be dominated and ruled by me, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, so of course, that's the problem that people are afraid of with figures, with super figures, mm-hmm. right? That they'll be used as fascist models, you know? And so, so that has definitely happened and is, and is still happening. And that is, um, that is what the political conflict at the heart of this newly popular nerd culture is really about, mm-hmm. right? Like, are we going to work ourselves beyond the original conditions that created this category in the first place, right? And have this kind of radical egalitarian democratic society that's open to everybody on equal terms, or are we going to become evil Superman, Mm -hmm. right? And one of the things that I want to point out for people who may not know this is that there are tons, I mean, precisely because uh, superhero comics contain this possibility there are tons of narratives, you know, that from within comic book culture and superhero comics and graphic novels and movies, right, there and television series, there are tons of storylines that deal with this problem of what if Superman were a fascist, right? What if, so for instance, one of the most interesting ones, I think, um, is about 20 years old now. It's called The Authority, mm-hmm. right? A comic book called The Authority, where basically there, it's a version of the Justice League, Right. But the but what the authority decides to do as the Justice League, right, is they say, you know, we're we're not going to we're not going to play by the rules of the oppressive system. We're going to intervene sometimes violently. Right. In order to correct what we see as wrong. And that definitely risks going into an authoritarian superhero mode. Mm-hmm. And so the authority um, is one of the most interesting uh, superhero properties that talks about like, where is that line? Like if, you know, what should superheroes do? Like if you were really Superman or a version of Superman, you know, or Wonder Woman or whoever, right. Would you not feel like, uh, you needed to intervene for instance, right. In a genocide, Mm -hmm. right. Even though you have not been invited by the United Nations to do so. Right. So there are all these interesting ethical questions, right, about if you've got the power, how do you use it without becoming the thing that you're fighting? Mm-hmm. And I also want to say, because this is something that I think in the wake of the MCU and also the DCEU, right, so the big DC Marvel movies, mm-hmm. that I think is getting lost because now Sony has is no longer producing X-Men movies, right? There are also long traditions, uh, in particular the X-Men in Marvel, but also other traditions too, in superhero comics, where the superheroes 
are an oppressed minority themselves, mm-hmm. right? So the the whole premise of the X Men, right, which is which was fantastically popular through the eighties and nineties, and still has a huge fan base and produced a bunch of movies. Mm-hmm. The whole premise is that mutants are genetically different people who gain powers from their genetic difference, but are also hunted by uh, sometimes by both governments and just by regular people who think that they are not citizens and that they're monsters and they need to be destroyed. Mm-hmm. And so, so there's another way in which many superhero comics thematize and examine this problem, uh, you know, of what it means to be a, uh, you know, uh, an outsider in terms of race, ethnicity, gender, sexuality. Um, and I would recommend one particular graphic novel, right, which if you don't get it, right, this graphic novel will, you know, like you will after you read it. It's called, uh, it's by, by the writer Chris Claremont, mm-hmm. and it's called God Loves, Man Kills, mm-hmm. you know, which is all about, right, the problem of genetic difference and, uh, and becoming the political other, right, and what you do when you're a member of, a, of an oppressed minority. So, you know, there are lots of different ways in which superhero narratives try to deal with these questions Mm -hmm. um that doesn't mean they solved them but it also means that like they haven't just discovered those problems either right right so tell me about um you said you have a new work coming out that you're working on right now uh yes so i have uh the the tentative title because you know you never actually have a title until it's really published and the publishers have decided that your title is okay. Mm-hmm. Uh the the tentative title is is Homeworlds. Mm-hmm. Uh and uh and the book is going to be about like if nerd ecology was about nerds as parts of biological and political systems. Mm-hmm. Homeworlds is about nerd environmentality. In other words, um what happens when you get nerd culture Right. And and very active groups of fans and other kinds of nerds who actually build their own environments. Right. In order to express in physical form. Right. The world that they are inhabiting together. Right. In in the nerd culture that they are part of. Um, So Wakanda Khan is a great example. Right. Where that is a convention where people come often dressed as characters from Black Panther. Right. And and Wakanda Khan is is a, a, a sort of temporary environment in which Wakanda starts to materialize mm-hmm. in different ways. And people like gather as a Wakanda based community. So, so there's, there's that kind of thing, but I'm also talking about spaces like comic book shops, right. And, uh, and uh, clubs in schools and other things where basically nerd culture starts to materialize. And so what I'm examining in, in this book is what it means to for nerds to build their own environments based on these this literature and film and television and so on that they love, right? And then what does it mean because these environments are real? They're they're often temporary, but they're you know they're they're physical. You can enter them. What it means then to work out the political problems that we've just been talking about in a real face to face community, mm-hmm. right? Issues of inclusivity, issues of power, you know, um, issues of uh, who feels safe and who doesn't feel safe in these nerd spaces. And, you know, and so it seems to me really important to recognize that um, that, for instance, the Harry Potter fandom. Right. Which is very powerful and actually 
you know, engages in a lot of political activism and a lot of charity work, mm-hmm. right? There's actually, there are groups like the Harry Potter Alliance, which has hundreds of thousands of members all over the world, mm-hmm. right? Where people band together, right? Imagining themselves to be parts of, part of the, the Hogwarts world, mm-hmm. right? So there, so this isn't superheroes, this is magicians, but same, same principle, mm-hmm. right? They band together to do good, right? In the name of Harry Potter. And then of course, Right. You get multiple controversies in the last 10 years mm-hmm. with J.K. Rowling. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, about her um, her transphobia. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, about her attempt to actually make an American version of a magical school that borrows elements from indigenous cultures in North America that she doesn't really understand, mm-hmm. like the Thunderbird. Mm-hmm. Um, which you actually see. Right. You see a Thunderbird in the new movies about Newt Scamander. Right. So. So what happens when these these nerd worlds start to break free of the original creator who may actually still be alive? Mm-hmm. Right. Because what has happened in the in the case of Harry Potter Alliance and uh, and J.K. Rowling, right, is that the Harry Potter Alliance has denounced her. Right. Like they they've said, we are not a transphobic community. We welcome trans people. Mm-hmm. Right. They're all of these Harry Potter indigenous Harry Potter fans so many of whom are academics, right, who have explained what is wrong with the way she's appropriated indigenous cultures. Mm-hmm. And like it breaks their heart, you know, like one of the first things that they all say, right, when they talk about this publicly is like, this is breaking my heart, but it has to be done. Mm-hmm. Right. And so one of the things I'm examining is what happens when the politics uh, of the creator of the world starts to part company with the actual materialized fan world that is being developed by by the fans mm-hmm. right like because you don't like what's happening is the power of the of the author capital a is starting to be challenged when people in the fandoms who quite rightly are identifying unjust elements mm-hmm. not just in their community but actually in the vision of the creator right they say you know look Harry Potter is going to go on without J.K. Rowling, mm-hmm. right? They're like, this is our thing now. She doesn't get to say that trans people aren't real. Mm-hmm. And this is, a, this is an incredibly important development, right, both culturally and politically, because what it means is that when you start to materialize a space of community, even if it's temporary or even if it's digital, right, what happens then is that that community starts to assert the political meaning of the original story world in a way that can challenge the, the, uh, what, what the creator apparently meant. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Or, and what the creator continues to mean, right. Because of course, J.K. Rowling and many other creators are still alive. Mm-hmm. And so now you have this political contest between creator and fans, right. And fan communities about the meaning of the world itself in mm. political terms. And I, I just think that's really important. Yeah, that's fascinating. Where can people find uh, find you online? Um, website, social media? So, um, so sadly, I don't have a snappy website of my own yet. I'm trying mm. to develop one. You know, for people who actually want to access the materials, like my, the scholarly things that I've written and sometimes the more, um, the more fun and formal stuff that I've written, mm-hmm. um, I would point them to academia.edu, mm-hmm. right? Where I have, uh, I have an archive of, uh, of a lot of that material, mm-hmm. right? Um, including the book, by the way, I probably shouldn't say that, but, um, there's mm-hmm. a, <laughs> there's a, there's an uncorrected PDF of the book, 
Yeah. Uh, so if you don't want to buy it, you can actually uh, you can actually take a look at it there. Okay. And uh, you know, and and I think actually that I am going to as the Homeworlds project develops, uh, I'm hoping to have uh, a blog with associated Facebook and Twitter material hmm. on it. But that hasn't happened quite yet. Like I have to get to the summer before that happens. But right. um, but yeah, there should be a Homeworlds blog soon. Okay, and I'll spell your name for for listeners: um, Anthony A N T H O N Y, and last name is L I O I. Thank you for doing that because I always forget. All right, cool, cool. Well, that's all the questions I have. Do you have any uh, parting thoughts or words? You know, I actually feel like we covered it. Yeah. So thank you, thank you for giving me the opportunity. Um, to talk about this work because um, I'm still very much in it. Mm -hmm. uh, and I would love to talk to people about it, right? If they listen to this, uh, you know, and then have a reaction, you know, like good, better, and different. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You brought up some really amazingly interesting things to think about. Um, so, yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks. Yeah. No, I look forward to talking to people about it. Cool. Well, thank you. In the next episode, I speak with Jen McCarran and Matt Berkowitz of Thunderbird and Atomic about Last Kids on Earth and the animation industry. Hit the subscribe button to catch that episode. Thank you for listening to Full Contact Nerd Interviews. If you want more interviews with writers and creative people, or to get daily fiction suggestions including sci-fi, fantasy, horror, film history, gaming, and more, sign up for my newsletter at fullcontactnerd.com and follow me on Chris Alvarez Full Contact Nerd on YouTube and Chris Alvarez FCN on Facebook and Twitter, Chris Alvarez Sci-Fi on Instagram, and this podcast, Full Contact Nerd Interviews. If you want to hear interviews with military historians or get daily history book suggestions, check out warscholar.org and follow me at Warscholar on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter, at Chris Alvarez Warscholar on Instagram, and my podcast, Military History Inside Out. If you want to hear interviews with space scientists, space historians, and technology experts, or get daily space and science book suggestions, check out technologyinspace.com and follow me at Spacewalks Money Talks on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, Spacewalks MT on Twitter, and my podcast, Technology and Space. Thanks for listening, and I hope to see you again soon. Keep imagining the past, the present, and the future.